0: Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly. With the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion,
1: the The international science radio show.
0: We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths psychology, astro-seismology, magnetism, the dark side,
2: genetically engineered potatoes,
0: planetoid,
2: planetoid. I love that word.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Diet for Bacteria with Mark Reed. But first up, Here's the news. Sounding out Alzheimer's. Researchers from the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland have discovered that focusing ultrasound on the brain's protective layer can activate the brain's own cleanup cells to come in and clear out the amyloid plaques that are causing. Alzheimer's disease symptoms. Three-quarters of the Alzheimer's suffering mice treated this way recovered their memories and mental sharpness. In Alzheimer's disease, amyloid plaques stick between brain cells and neurofibrillary tangles sit inside brain cells. They gum up the works. The team found that focusing high frequency sound waves at the blood-brain barrier that protects the brain from infection Will open it up a little for a few hours to stimulate the brain's own microglial cells to activate and remove the plaques. There were no harmful side effects, and the blood brain barrier went right back to protecting the brain from infection. The treated mice improved their performance in three memory tasks a maze, a test to recognize new objects, and one to remember the places they should avoid. The team will be testing sheep next, and humans will trial the treatment in 2017. I look forward to finding out how they test the mental acuity of sheep. The research was published in the journal Science Translational Medicine and was titled Scanning Ultrasound Removes Amyloid Beta and Restores Memory in an Alzheimer's Disease Mouse Model. Let's hope they also find a treatment to heal the neurofibrillary tangles inside the neurons so that everyone can regain the ability to say neurofibrillary three times fast. listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Inspiring Australia hosted an early career research scientist talk night at the Ultimo Library. Mark Reed is a computer scientist who works at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. He's gone from computer science to trying to simulate and model biological systems to help biologists understand them. He gave a talk about how diet interacts with bacteria to influence your health. Here's an edited version of his talk. There's some background noise in the talk, and I'm sorry, this is as much as I was able to remove.
3: We have heard an awful lot in recent years about the Western lifestyle epidemic. What are they? Well, the big ones are obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease. What causes all this stuff? Diet is often pointed to, so we're told things like too much fat in our diet. Um, I love chips, I hope you don't get too hungry watching this talk. <laughs> we're told too many carbohydrates, so things like breads and pastas. We're told too much sugar, sugar is actually a kind of carbohydrate. And occasionally we're also told we eat too much protein. Well, I've got news for you that beyond those four things, there's not actually a lot else in food. So what are you supposed to be eating? Is it that we just have too much food? In recent years, how many of you are familiar with the concept that your gut bacteria kind of do funky things to your health? It's become a pretty hot topic in the last few years, which is great. It funds people like me. It's a sexy topic. But let's just have a look at some of the ways in which this stuff actually works. So these guys did a study. They took two groups of mice, normal mice, which had... um, They had bacteria in their guts, and they took what's called germ-free mice. They're raised in really remarkable conditions of no bacterial exposure whatsoever. They have no bacteria in their guts. These wonderful mice were fed a high-fat diet. Again, it's hunger-inducing. What happened? The normal mice ate less and weighed more, and the germ-free mice ate more and weighed less. So whatever is going on here, the bacteria look like they're extracting more energy from the food, and it looks like they've got some kind of control over how much you're eating, which is bizarre. And to prove it really was the bacteria, these guys then took the bacteria from the normal mice, put it in the germ-free mice, and those mice then got fatter. So... That's kind of weird, um, and this this fecal transplant stuff or transfusion, I heard it called, <laughs> is um, I think that was mostly pioneered here in Australia. Australia has done some really cool science in this this field. So bacteria, it looks like they can help make you fat. Let's just do a bit of a history of bacteria in the gut. Now, for a while, up till about thirty odd years ago, the general feeling in the community was. You don't have bacteria inside of you. That's that's ridiculous. I'm not. Obviously, you know, but it's, uh, there's loads of acid in your stomach. How can anything survive that? Well, this guy, Professor Barry Marshall, who is an Australian, he was trying to figure out what causes stomach ulcers, which can be quite serious. They can be fatal. He thought they were caused by bacteria, and then he ran into this argument and most of his colleagues were right? talking about you weirdo. So, frustrated by all of this, in 1981, actually, I think it might have been a couple of years after that. He ate a Petri dish full of Helicobacter. He's clearly interested in dicing with death because he also didn't tell his wife. <laughs> what happened? Well, he thought it might take years for something to happen. So he was trying to prove that these bacteria cause stomach ulcers. And he thought maybe in a couple of years I might be in trouble. Within two weeks, he was nauseous. He was vomiting all the time. And they confirmed that he, in fact, did have huge infections of this stuff in his gut. And then he abandoned chips, so, and this is probably a good thing because this was getting quite serious. So his wife found out and said, you need to take some antibiotics. He won a Nobel Prize, actually, and I'm just going to put this disclaimer here in case any of you are feeling a bit scientific this evening. Please don't go and eat a load of this bacteria. It's really bad for you. However, not all bacteria is bad for you. So let's just look at some of the things that bacteria can do and what they are. So for starters, they're a lot smaller than human cells. It's actually ten times as many bacteria cells in and around your body as there are human cells. There's a lot more of them. Your gut bacteria weighs about a kilogram, which is quite a lot, I thought, at least. In any one individual, there are more than a thousand different species of bacteria in their gut, which, again, sounds like quite a lot. They're responsible for, give or take, about 10% of your energy harvest. So when you eat food, about 10% of your energy is coming from what the bacteria do to the food, not just you directly absorbing it. They have a lot more human genes collectively as a whole, community of bacteria than human genes. And that's interesting because the genes, they're kind of like the functions you can perform. If you are able to do anything, it's because your genes enable you to break down certain foodstuffs and stuff like that. if you've got 150 more of them, these bacteria are pretty versatile. They can do a lot of interesting things. So what do they do? They produce vitamins. I believe they even produce essential vitamins that humans can't manufacture. And they also produce anti-inflammatory signals. So Germ-free mice, so those same mice raised without any bacteria in and around them, usually end up with all kinds of weird autoimmunity problems. And that in itself is interesting. So I know you're thinking, you're thinking you are what you eat. Didn't have to look very find this excited looking guy. Hmm. It kind of follows that your bacteria are also what you eat. Because they're eating the stuff that you're eating. They've got no other access to food. Which raises a few other interesting questions about what bacteria might do. There is actually a lot of neurons in your gut, and it's been referred to as a second brain. I don't think it's out there doing calculations or anything, so you know maths. But this does raise the interesting question of bacteria produce an awful lot of signalling molecules, and there's a lot of interaction between them and you. And as a community of scientists, we're still finding out about this stuff. It is stunning how much interaction there is between us and bacteria. If they're signalling neurons, they might have all kinds of interesting influences on us that we don't realise. For instance, I don't know how proven this is, but certainly it seems to be possible and it's hypothesized, they can control your mood. Could they also be controlling hunger? So what you eat eventually gets through to the bacteria. If the bacteria can then also interact with your nervous system and they can interact with the hormonal system, could it also be the case that they are controlling what you eat? And this makes sense from an evolutionary point of view, because the bacteria that get in you and can make you eat what they need to live will survive. They get a selective advantage. They push out the pathogens. I should say this is a hypothesis. It sounds pretty plausible to me. No one's actually proven it yet. If you raise the point over on point. Nothing's really ever a fact in science, but I suspect it's only a matter of time. So, where do we go with all of this information? Well, we'd like to regain control over what's happening in our bodies. I've put some disaster scenarios out there for you. Most of us are completely healthy, by the way, and we be thankful for it. But nonetheless, what can we do to try and interfere with this? we know that diet is driving bacterial communities, surely we can figure out how to shape our bacterial communities the way we want them, to our benefit. Well, you'd hope so, but I'm just going to go through some complications with you. So for starters, diet. What exactly is diet? Diet is, one, macronutrient distribution. What this really just means is how much protein versus fat versus carbohydrate is there in what you're eating. There's obviously things like steaks and stuff you chuck on the barbecue hydrates and things like breads and pasta, and then there's also fats. There is also energy density. How nutritious is your food? And certainly I've heard it talked about that food, vegetables, fruits, contain less vitamins and minerals than they used to. I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly some, particularly when you get into processed foods, some foods contain much more nutrients per kilogram than other foods. This is a cardboard hamburger and chips, and this is just to exemplify the complete other end of the scale. So that's a food that has very little nutritious value. I haven't put the disclaimer, don't eat cardboard, I hope it goes without saying. There's also your intake pattern. Some of you may have heard of something called the 5-2 diet. Have you heard of the 5-2 diet? It's basically the idea that for five days a week you eat a balanced diet. I wouldn't say eat whatever you want, but you know, eat, eat well. And then for two days a week you reduce the amount you eat to maybe about a quarter of what you normally would. It looks like there are health benefits to this, in yeast, in some bacteria, possibly also in mice, not in flies. For humans, it's not clear. People will say they feel a lot better doing this kind of stuff, but we've all heard what placebo effect is. The boat's out on that one. It could be quite good for us. We're not that certain. But anyway, the point here is when you're eating and whether or not you're fasting. So but the point is, there's periods of time when you're not eating. That means your bacteria are not eating either. There's also fibres. We all hear about fibre in the diet. We wonder why on earth do we eat fibres more? well? We don't really process fibre at all, but your bacteria can. What do we do with these bacteria? So this is what's normally done. We've got a funky bacterial sample here. We want to analyse it. We chuck it into one of these very expensive looking um, sequencing machines. I should add, I don't do this stuff. It's on the other side of the glass wall for me. I'm not allowed in the labs because I have a degree in in computer science and biology. But I work with people who do this. This is a phylogenetic tree. Every single one of these bars here represents a different species of bacteria. And these lines here indicate how they are related to each other in terms of evolutionary divergence. So some of them are very distant evolutionary ancestors. Humans are probably out here in the ceiling somewhere. But that's basically just saying, who's there? Which bacteria do you have in that sample? That's not always very useful because biology is riddled with functional redundancy. And that's basically tech talk for many different things can do the same thing you might have three completely different bacteria, but they can all cause cancer. My point here is really, it's okay to know which bacteria are there, but what we really care about is what they're doing. And that's not so simple, because you can sequence them and you can get hold of the genes that are in the bacteria, but even that doesn't tell you what they're doing, because genes have to be expressed to actually do something. It's kind of like saying, here's a cookbook. You can't tell from the cookbook what the cook is actually cooking. You just know what they might be doing. Now, remembering... We were on this adventure because we wanted to figure out how might you shape your diet to influence your bacterial communities. It's all looking a bit hairy for the minute. We're going to take a bit of a segue because there is actually proof that diet can select for bacteria. This is as complicated as the talk is going to get, so bear with me here. There were 100 mice fed different diets composing of different amounts of carbohydrate, things like bread, it wasn't actually bread, but if it was humans it would be bread, versus things like protein. So 100 mice somewhere on this landscape. If you look at the relative abundance, and that means proportionable bacteria, and something like 2% of the people in this room. So we're interested in all the bacteria, how many of them were this thing called acomancia? The numbers go up on these crappy-looking diets, and up to about 7%, which is quite high for any one species of bacteria. Out here on these richer diets, where there's more nutritional content in those foods, not very many of these bacteria. What's going on here? If any of you have got kids, you know what that is as mucus. Your gut is lined with mucus, quite a lot of it. We always used to think that was there as a barrier, because generally speaking, when you put a bunch of bacteria in direct contact with human cells, it doesn't often end well. It's okay if it's some cells, but you don't want bacteria in your bloodstream, for instance. So we thought maybe this is there as a protective barrier. Now, it actually turns out that some bacteria can eat mucus, which is bizarre. Why might they do this? Well, Let's look at that, let's take a step back. Your gut, though you might not think of it, makes for a wonderful home for some bacteria. It's dark, there's no oxygen, it's damp, and there's a fair amount of nutrients that come in on a fairly regular basis, because you're eating. There's a lot of bacteria that would love to set up camp. The problem is some bacteria are better for you than others. Now Many, many years ago, food was harder to come by. You couldn't just go down to the shop and buy it in large quantities and eat three meals a day. You'd have to chase something scary around the place and pop it on the head and eat it. The point is, there'd be periods of time where you're actually kind of fasting. You're starving. You haven't got any food to eat. So, if you've got a bunch of different bacteria, and some of them can eat mucus, and some of them, I'm going to guess this one, is not good for you, can't eat mucus, those periods of starvation will select them. These guys will die because they'll starve. The ones that can eat mucus will survive through the fasting period. It's like you're giving them a helping hand, and then when you next eat some actual food, they'll still be there, helping you out. So this is a case of a symbiotic relationship. We've evolved with some bacteria, and we've evolved mutually beneficial relationships. We give them a home to live in. They don't make us sick. In fact, they occupy the home and prevent other things from getting in there. And that's good for us, and they provide energy and vitamins and all those things we just saying. So, what's going on here is that Ackermansia are surviving on those low-nutrient diets. This is essentially diets they are kind of like starvation. There's not a lot of nutrients in those. These bacteria, Ackermansia, are prevalent on these bad diets because they can eat mucus. They've incidentally been linked with weight loss, and they have anti-inflammatory properties. It's actually rare that we can say something like that about a particular bacterial strain, but we can say it about this one. So, the question is, do you want more things like Atomansia? Well, yes, I suppose, but people aren't usually in favor of starving themselves. Some people much stronger will than me can do things like the 5-2 diet. I've tried it, I just get a headache. and get very, very grouchy. Furthermore. It's more complicated than that because some individuals who are completely healthy don't have any Acomansia So, the point here really is, it's the collective, not the individual we need to be considering. Individual bacteria are not that useful to be looking at. They work in teams. Some bacteria produce waste products and other bacteria eat. That's kind of like teamwork. They also fight. Most of the antibiotics that I'm aware of are produced by bacteria to kill other bacteria. These guys are at war constantly. What I'm saying is it is going to be a limited use to just look at individual bacteria. You need to look at the whole community. What are they doing in the context of everyone else that's there? So, where are we with all of this? We've got a lot of variables. We've got diets which can have different amounts of protein, carb, and fat in it. We've got to consider the energy density, which is whether it's cardboard or highly nutritious. How much are you actually eating? Are you fasting? Because that clearly has an effect as well. And then there's all this fiber and prebiotic stuff. Add to that, bacteria aren't that simple either. We can find out which bacteria are there, but as I've said, that's not always that useful. You want to know what they're doing, and that's not so easy to figure out. Furthermore, every host is unique and different, and that makes it very difficult to figure out what these relationships are, and we need to look at the whole community, not just individual bacteria. There's more, but we're running out of time, so I won't go into it in huge detail. You're on a diet. Why? Often it's to lose weight, but diets are linked to health outcomes, and there is no perfect diet. So a colleague of mine has done a study recently and found this. High-carb diets lead to longer life more protein is generally better if you want to maximize your reproductive health and if you want to lose weight you've got to eat a lot of protein so less carbs i'll tell you that eating lots of protein causes gut cancer so why are you dieting you've got to figure out what is it you actually want to achieve so in summary this is where we are post-health microbiota this is the bacterial communities in you and the diets are related but it's a really big complicated mess This is what we would like, and I'll call it Star Trek, because we don't have it yet. What we would like is some kind of magical oracle thing. I've drawn it as a computer, because I'm taking simulations. We want to tell the thing, this is what I'm currently eating. These are the bacteria got in me. This is my current health status. This is what I want my health status to be. This thing crunches some serious numbers, and out the other end it says, eat this many apples, some steaks, you can have some butter eat these fiber things and run more often. That would be lovely. We're quite a way away from being able to do that. But what we are doing is starting to simulate this stuff, and this is kind of where I come in. Simulations are scary-looking maths like this. I can do some maths. It's not my biggest strength. I write computer code. It's a different kind of modeling. But you can take data from all these different studies that have been done and you can bring them together into one unified framework. You can try and make sense of it. You can make assumptions about what bacteria do. We have to, because we don't understand everything that bacteria do. But we know that, like us, they need some things to live. They need a carbon source, they need to get hold of nitrogen. They need a whole load of other things too. But we can start making assumptions about that stuff. We can potentially input an individual's characteristics, so don't just simulate the generic person, but actually provide some real parameters. Me, or Blake, or someone else in the audience may want to be simulated and then we can ask the computer to figure it out for us. Based on me and everything that we've been put into you, the computer, what should I be eating? But, let's just summarise where we are then. So I haven't come to tell you the results, I've come to tell you really, this is a problem, it's worth looking at, but it's really hard. That's pretty much where we are. So Western lifestyle diseases are an impending problem. We've got to deal with them. Diet looks like it could be the answer. Certainly we know that diet influences things like weights. That diet is more complicated than just what you're eating. All those other dimensions do as well. We know that the bacteria in your gut do something. They can control your weight. They can probably control your hunger. Just by the way, they also are linked to obesity, autism, multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease, colon cancer. I read Parkinson's disease earlier on. Remember me saying there is a lot of interaction between the bacteria and you? They are critical to your immune system's function. And if they go kind of wrong, you go kind of wrong. Not all bacteria are bad. It's the community of the bacteria that matters. You can have cancer causing bacteria in you, but if they're just a really small minority of all the bacteria there, you're probably going to be okay. Something else will be throwing antibiotics at it, trying to kill it. On that, thank you for listening.
0: That was Mark Reed from the University of Sydney talking about simulating the interactions between gut bacteria in our body under the influence of diet I'll be posting Mark's full unedited talk on the diffusionradio.com episode page you can hear my interview with Mark next week
1: Bacteria Bacteria Look there's bacteria. bacteria 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 You might not see them but they're there Bacteria Bacteria Everything you touch Bacteria Bacteria That's right salmonella bacteria but we have to watch out for bacteria that can spoil our chicken bacteria practically everywhere everywhere you look in the kitchen inside the cooler in the dining area in the restrooms on our raw chicken and like i said bacteria bacteria look there's bacteria 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 you might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria. Salmonella grows on raw chicken, especially old chicken. Moist foods like our salad. Staph bacteria on the left and strep bacteria on the right. Salmonella. Shigella. Clostridium. If you didn't wash your hands, they would become breeding grounds for bacteria. Bacteria? Look, there's bacteria. Bacteria. Bacteria? You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria? Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria? That's right. Salmonella bacteria. Fever, cramps, and fever, dysentery. Fever, V fever, fever, vomiting, vomiting, chills, cramps, chills and chills in grams one square inch half a billion salmonella bacteria these bacteria really sound serious they are when they're left unchecked and it could mean a trip to the hospital for someone our customers wow ourselves all right our chicken all right and our reputation all right all right you mean bacteria on me right now clean clean and then clean again bacteria bacteria look there's Bacteria, bacteria, bacteria. You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria, bacteria. Everything you touch, bacteria, bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria, salmonella bacteria, salmonella bacteria.
0: bacteria. And that was Jonathan Coulton's Bacteria. You can find more on jonathancoulton.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, stories, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby-Karingai, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, Radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from Stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links and photos about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
2: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick,